0: this is laura london and you're listening to speaking of jung returning to the podcast today is Jungian analyst and author j gary sparks he received a bachelor of science in electrical engineering from the prestigious bucknell university in pennsylvania a master of divinity and master of arts in pastoral counseling from the pacific school of religion in berkeley california and a Diploma in Analytical Psychology from the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich. His thesis, The Wounded Finger, Anchorage for Soul and Sense in Technology, dealt with the psychology of creativity in science, the bearing of scientific creativity on unconscious processes and on soul and spirit. His thesis advisor, Marie-Louise von Franz, was considered to be Jung's closest disciple, and his training analysts include Jung's grandson, Dieter Bauman, and close friend and confidant, C.A. Meyer. Mr. Sparks was a lecturer and seminar presenter at the C.G. Jung Foundation of Ontario, Canada, and a lecturer for the analyst training program at the Research and Training Center for Depth Psychology, according to C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz in Zurich. He lectures widely on all levels of Jungian psychology, from introductory material to the detailed study of Jung's most difficult works, and he is currently in private practice in Indianapolis, Indiana, where he holds study groups in his home. He is the author of At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament. And Valley of Diamonds: Adventures in Number and Time with Marie Louise von Franz. He is the editor of Edward Edinger's Ego and Self: The Old Testament Prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, and co-editor with Darrell Sharp of Edinger's Science of the Soul. His new book, Carl Jung and Arnold Toynbee: The Social Meaning of Inner Work, was published just this month by Inner City Books. This interview was recorded on Friday, September 22nd, 2017, through the magic of Skype. Hi, Gary. Thanks so much for coming back to the podcast.
1: Oh, nice to be here. You
0: and I did episode two, two years ago. You were gracious enough to have me at your home, and I think we spent about 10 hours talking that day.
1: We did indeed, yeah.
0: That was great, and um, I had these tiny little lapel microphones that I used at the time because I had just started the podcast. And now we're talking on Skype and uh, hopefully it'll sound a little bit better. During that first talk, we discussed your first book called At the Heart of Matter, Synchronicity and Jung's Spiritual Testament. Yeah, uh And ever since then, I've wanted to do another episode with you about your second book, which had always fascinated me. It's called Valley of Diamonds: Adventures in Number and Time with Marie Louise von Franz and I love the story of why you named this book
1: Valley of Diamonds and would you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, it comes out of a dream of Jung's. Uh, I believe he had the dream either while he was at the Arnos conference or he told the dream to uh, the woman who hosted the Arnos conferences in Southern Switzerland. Uh, that he was in a a valley of diamonds and he tried to put as many diamonds into his uh, pocket as possible, but he was only able to get a very small percentage of the diamonds that were surrounding him in his pocket and he woke up. And I understood those diamonds to be the wealth of the psyche that Jung had a, a view of and that his work minds them for us and shows us the the grandeur, the beauty, the value, the intensity of the psyche and that his work on numbers was was one of those diamonds.
0: This book essentially is your interpretation of von Franz's book called Number and Time and I've heard from several people actually, before I heard of your book, Valley of Diamonds, I had heard from several people that number and time was impossible to understand. And you make no bones about it, that it is a difficult book. And von Franz said that it was, I think you said, she said it was quote, unreadable.
1: Unreadable. She (laughs) says my unreadable book.
0: Yes. And uh, I just want to also mentioned that you knew her personally. She was your thesis advisor at the I wrote the my Institute. thesis
1: for her. Yes, I wrote my thesis for her. Yes.
0: What prompted you to write a book about her book, Number and Time? Why would you do that?
1: I asked myself the same question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, it all started when I turned about 40. And I was feeling relatively confident in my profession. And wondering what I would do with the energy I, I felt I had for the field uh, in the near and distant future. So I was asking my, my dream maker, you know, what's next? What do I do next? Mm-hmm. And I, have, I get my, my big dreams in short sentences. And the dream was, Von Franz wrote a book that was profound. That was it. And so I thought, what in the world is that? Well, this was in the days when Borders still existed. Yes. So I went to our local Borders, and I was looking through a Jungian section. Actually, the manager of Borders there was a kind of a Jung fan, mm-hmm. and there was, a, there was a Jung section. And I looked through von Franz's works, and I looked at number a number of times, and I thought, I bet that is the book. Uh, because I remember her talking about it. I remember analysts talking about it, how unreadable it was. And I thought, well, I'm going to give this book a shot. I bet I read that book um, half a dozen times. I had no idea what it was talking about. Finally, after reading, after reading, taking notes, sleeping on it, slowly it began to sink in. You know, it's not as obscure as one first thinks. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you go into absolutely every detail, yes. But the general argument of the book, the general themes in the book, uh, are actually very practical in the way we do analysis. And I tried to approach it from that point of view. Really, I wrote the book. Well, first, I gave a seminar. Mm-hmm. I gave a seminar on it, and the folks were very appreciative. Uh, One of the women in the group was an artist and and began painting images of our discussion. So we talk about the book. She'd bring a painting in. We talk about the painting as a way of getting our heart involved with the book. Mm. And then slowly I could see, you know, this really does have something to do with the way we do therapy.
0: The book does begin by talking about the similarities between Depth psychology, which is Jungian psychology, and quantum physics. And you go into great detail about that in your first book, At the Heart of Matter, which I highly recommend because it's fascinating. And I have a background in that. And in fact, I'm going to be going to Fermilab tomorrow. It's oh, their, my gosh, really? Yeah, it's their 50th anniversary. They're oh having wow. an open house. Yes. It's, oh, my gosh. It's here in the greater Chicago area. It's about an yeah. hour's drive. And I've been there many times. Um, no kidding. But it's been a while. So, would you briefly tell us? You had said that there are three main themes to your book.
1: Yes. And let's. Really, to to her book.
0: To her book. So let's start there.
1: Um, The first theme, uh, I'll I'll just say these these, uh, summary phrases. They won't make sense at the moment. Okay. But we can come back to them. The first theme is the psyche is numerically structured, and nature, particularly the atom, is numerically structured. And we can revisit that thought. Uh, The second theme is numbers are symbols. We look at numbers quantitatively. The psyche uses numbers qualitatively. The third main theme is what I call the dual mandala, images of two mandalas linked up in a meaningful way. So back to your uh, question about the beginning of the book, I'd say the first uh, main theme is is the psyche and matter are numerically structured, and that's what allows synchronicity to happen.
2: Okay.
1: Now, that's a very intuitive comment. Is that what allows synchronicity to happen? I don't know. But it's worth considering, if not that, it is still a useful idea for the way we understand what we do in therapy.
0: Let's go back a little bit further. Why did von Franz write this book? This had something to do with Jung, didn't it?
1: Yeah, at the end of his life, uh, I, I think through his connection with Wolfgang Pali, he became more and more interested in the, the link between physics and psychology. Uh, if you want to put it in a broader frame, the link uh, between matter and psyche. Matter and Spirit. And, and one of the themes that must have come out of his discussion with Pali was this issue of the psychology of numbers. And so he, he was trying to work on how each number has an individual personality. And he was, I think, probably months before his death and was just out of energy. And he said to her, you know, this is this is as far as I've got. If you want to work on it, here are my thoughts. And and passed a slip of paper onto her with his very provisional thinking.
0: Mm-hmm. And they had a very close relationship, didn't they?
1: They did, yes. Uh-huh.
0: And let's just, for everybody who's not familiar with Pauli, who was Wolfgang Pauli?
1: Wolfgang Pauli was a very interesting guy. He was one of the, depending on how you count, uh, three, four, or five founders of quantum mechanics. Quantum mechanics is the physics of what goes on in the inside the atom, as opposed to you know macro physics, which is about bowling balls and croquet balls and large objects. After quantum mechanics was finalized, I believe 1927 or 28. He went to Zurich to take the chair of physics at the University of Zurich. That was the chair that Einstein had held. He soon got into a mess. He married a cabaret dancer, which is kind of a fast life. Mm -hmm. And that marriage collapsed within a year or two. Uh, His mom died. He started drinking, started getting in bar fights, and uh, was told, you know, this is no way for a hair professor to behave in Zürich. Ended up in Jung's consulting room. And um, Jung referred him out to a woman. Oh, I don't, I, nobody knows, her, knows who she is, as far as I'm aware. A woman named Erna Rosenbaum, who was a beginning student. He wanted Pally to work with somebody who wouldn't interfere with his process. And uh, after about a year, he got his feet back on the ground. Then he and Jung maintained, I called a kind of uh, professional friendship, an mm-hmm. occasional letter, maybe a lunch here and there, a glass of beer on Friday afternoon, um, until the war started, World War II. Pauly was half Jewish and had to leave Switzerland because the Nazis were amassing just about uh, 30 minutes north of Zurich along the German border, came to the States, and he worked with um, worked at the institute for advanced studies with an office next door to einstein after the war went back to zurich he did not work on the manhattan project Mm -hmm. he was the only physicist who said it's not the business of science to to engineer mass destruction but his student robert Oppenheimer, as you probably know was the director of the manhattan project how they got horrifically depressed he knew It wasn't reasonable. He had done nothing wrong himself, but he's called the conscience of physics. And out of that feeling that he somehow had to address where science had gone. I don't know if I should say gone wrong or or at least taken the path that led led to the very dilemma we're facing today yeah, with yeah. the threats of hydrogen bombs uh, delivered by a rogue nation. Um, he went back to Jung, and he presented the dreams to Jung he was having about the state of science and the state of the world. The two of them had a very fertile dialogue. It's been published. Parts of it have been published in a book called Adam and Archetype. It's a it's a um, publication of their letters. Um, and out of that, dis- out of discussing Pauli's dreams, this is going to sound weird, but one of the things that surfaced in his dreams, that the future of the world really depends on whether psychology and physics can find common ground. Number is one of those places where, they felt they could start. Now, admittedly, this is a very broad question. They weren't thinking, okay, what's the practical value of this? They were simply following the dreams of of Pali's unconscious, which as as we suffer over social problems, our dreams speak about those social problems. This link between physics and psychology uh, was something active activated between the two of them, and as I say, I think number was one possible starting point. Pauli also challenged Jung to redefine his concept of archetype, which Jung did. Uh, so out of that discussion born of heartache, uh, they began to look at ways their two disciplines might intersect.
0: hmm And von Franz was close to Pauli as well, wasn't she?
1: She was. Um, That, um, uh, that relationship's complicated. Mm -hmm. I, I, I hesitated to call it love. I have copies of their letters to each other signed all this all love. Uh, that could mean one thing, or it could just mean like, you know, two, two friends. I've heard it called a transference. I was very pleased to hear, I believe his name is Charles Entz. Enz, I believe he was a director of CERN early on. He was he was Pauli's last assistant. Call it a that there was um, how did he put it? Love had something to do with that relationship.
0: Did von Franz use any of Pauli's material? What she learned from him did did that influence this book Number and Time?
1: This is my guesswork. Pauli by that time was in despair. He he couldn't turn back to his physics as I said. He knew this this makes no sense. I've done nothing wrong, but he felt his his scientific creativity dry up. And out of that friendship, which which I don't think was ever you know quote consummated. It wasn't a physical affair. It was long walks, talks, shared ideas, uh, Valleywood, a uh would present his dreams to Van Frant. She would try to interpret them. He slowly began to back away. I believe he was afraid of any real emotional commitment.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: But what it left her with, I think, was a share of heartache herself. And she turned to writing that book to address that heartache. So I don't know if he gave her any real hints, but Out of that relationship, I could imagine she turned to that book to express what she felt they could have done together and which she was forced to do alone.
0: I just would like to, for the record, since you knew von Franz, what was her relationship with Jung? I've heard some describe her as his his closest disciple, his student, his heir.
1: I think all of the above. Um... She met him. Let me see. There's a wonderful video. Uh, I believe it's called Bolligan 1983. It's um, put out by, uh, or it's available on that website, daimon.ch. If you go to the Bonfront section, it's an interview with her. A group of male students who were friends with the nephew of Tony Wolfe, I think I've got this right, were invited down to Bolligan for an afternoon. And she was invited along. So it was X number of boys and her. He noticed something about her in that interchange. She then attended his lectures at the ETAH. Now, the ETAH, would be like the Swiss MIT. So he was lecturing there. He walked up to her and reintroduced himself. Uh, They began analysis. She was getting her doctorate in um, classics, philology, classical philology. He then was working on alchemy and swapped analytic hours for her ability to translate the Latin uh, alchemical books. And then, yes. I think he called her that little genius. She was only about five feet tall, five feet one, five feet two, something like that. Uh, But, well, you just knew there was something inside that woman that was, first of all, brilliant, emotionally available, deeply spiritual. uh, You know, she could tell a dirty joke if she wanted to and grounded in, in the earth. And so he saw her, I would say, as a colleague. He didn't see many people as colleagues, but he would, would have seen her as a colleague. She helped him with the translation of um, all his alchemical work. He then inspired her to write her interpretation of Auroric insurgents, And it was, a, I think, a deep friendship with the creative project between the two of them as the focus.
0: And she never married or had children, did she?
1: She never married. No.
0: Was she at all close to Tony Wolf?
1: Uh, I don't know. Tony Wolf. Um, uh, my my history is a little fuzzy here. Tony Wolf would have been important to Young before von Franz was on the scene.
0: Because was I had heard. I don't know if it was you who told me that Tony Wolf was not interested in alchemy. But Jung in his later years is when Jung became very interested in alchemy. And that's where von Franz came in. She helped him with
1: that. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I understood. You know, there's a lot of oral tradition over there in Zurich. Uh, I'm assuming it's true. But what I've understood is that Tony Wolf effectively said to Jung, you know, people already think you're a kook. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. Um, if you work on this alchemy stuff, they're really going to think you're a kook. Yeah. Because it's so arcane. And I think that really started the division between the two of them. Okay. He knew he had to do it. Yeah. Uh, I think they uh, they retained a personal friendship. Uh, I just watched an uh, interview with uh, uh, Dieter Baumann, who was Jung's grandson, lived with Jung. Um, through the war years, he would have been a late teen. Um, and he said, Tony Wolf came over for dinner every Sunday night. So a friendship remained. Did the passionate intensity? I doubt it. Did the professional interchange keep its intensity? I doubt it. But I think a professional friendship remained.
0: You mentioned Dieter Baumann, who was Jung's grandson, and he was also one of your training analysts at the Jung Institute. And the reason why I mention these names, and and I'd like to talk a little bit about C.A. Meyer, who was another one of your training analysts and was very close to Jung, is because you were there with the first generation of Jungian analysts, the people who knew Jung and were trained by him.
1: One of the smartest things I've ever done.
0: And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that because people today who are training to become analysts don't have that option. Those people are gone, but you got that education with them. And I I was wondering if you would tell us a little bit about the difference between the way you were trained, it was in the seventies and the early eighties, right? And yes. the way the training is done today.
1: Well, let's see, Dieter Baumann. Uh, Followed in his grandfather's footsteps. Mm -hmm. He became a psychiatrist and actually trained at the Bergholtzley with the son of the psychiatrist who trained Jung. Uh, uh, Eugen Eugen Bloiler trained Jung. Manfred Bloiler trained Dieter. Um, He, his parents lived in Paris. When the Nazis invaded, they had to get out they had nowhere to go. Housing in Switzerland is very tight, so uh, he would have been, you know, I'm guessing fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, like that. Uh, they moved in with the Jungs on Seestrasse. So he spent uh, a good five, six years living with his grandfather, and uh, loved him. Spoke very, very affectionately of him. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jung was a strict dad. I got that impression. You didn't mess around with him. But but giving, caring. Emotionally available to his family, and uh, Dieter then became uh, a psychiatrist. I guess he left uh, left the Jung household and then moved out when he went to college, uh, went to undergraduate school. Um, the other guy that went so much to me was, as you mentioned, C. A. Meyer. Uh, gosh, he was eighty when I worked with him. I was um, twenty-eight. And he he treated me with enormous respect and thoughtfulness, very quiet, didn't say much, spent most of his time cleaning his pipe, but he was listening. He was listening deep down inside. And when he spoke, I listened. He had started his training with Freud in Vienna. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you've dug around in the history of psychoanalysis, what later became the Viennese Psychoanalytic Institute was first – called the Wednesday Society, met in Jung's apart, uh, Sorry, in Freud's apartment, and uh, Meyer was part of that. So he went way back and um, had some interesting stories about that time. But the, you asked about the difference in training. What would I extract? First of all, a fundamental knowledge of culture, fundamental knowledge of mythology, not mentally only but when there was a mythological motif they knew it and they felt it and they could feed back that feeling to you along with their interpretation i think that's one of the biggest uh, uh, differences from what i gather uh, give you an example i uh, attended a prof- Jungian professional society Oh, a couple of years ago, uh, not here in Indiana, somewhere in the U.S. And we had a very fashionable lunch when everyone talked about their European vacation. Then it came time for a case presentation. Not one dream was discussed. Mm -hmm. Not one. I protested. My protests were ignored. I protested again. I was more or less told... Uh, your comments aren't welcome. I left there nauseous. I don't feel that training has, or let me put it this way, training has less and less to do with the, the depth healing that works through images that Jung worked so hard to communicate. Um, it's not rational. It's, it's not irrational, but it is non-rational. And it takes a humility to sacrifice the linear rational intellect to hear that. As far as I'm concerned, that's not happening in training today. The central point of Jung is the healing process is in there. We just have to learn its language. And let me tell you, I trained in engineering and then theology. I had a heck of a time. Learning that stuff. Um, one of the reasons I uh, <laughs> uh, developed such a uh, immediate feeling to von, von Franz was in the in my fairy tale exam with her. Uh, I couldn't do that, and she started pounding the table and jumping up and down. Uh, let me tell you, that put the fear of God into me. <laughs> and later told me what I was saying was stupid, and I realized, you know, I don't really understand. This language of the psyche Mm -hmm. and not only mentally, but on a feeling level so that when somebody has an image in their unconscious, I can feel it, respond to it, communicate it. If it's appropriate, talk about, you know, how how I have wrestled with that same issue and make that experience alive for them. And if I can do that, then I've touched on their own healing process. And I don't have to go endlessly on about mother's breasts or transference or traumas or, or victimhood. The psyche begins to have a life of its own. I'm not saying all those other things aren't important, but the central focus for Jung is always the healing process.
0: I just would like to mention um, one of my favorite pages in your book, Valley of Diamonds, is page 103. You say, dreams are saying something. We do our best with our subjectivity to get their meaning, but the dream means something whether we have understood it or not. And if we consistently miss the intent of the dream, our physiology reacts. And I love that because somebody had written to a couple of us on Twitter saying dreams mean nothing. Right. I just ignored that as I tend to do. Twitter's not the place for discussion, for argument, for crosstalk. In my opinion, there's not enough room. There's no context and things get misunderstood a lot, which is why I like to use it for just short quotes. Right. You know, so there's still that idea out there and that, that dreams are just kind of, um, that, that there's no meaning. And
1: would you speak a
0: little bit about that?
1: Well, I think it's even worse. Um, <laughs> the, the, the postmodern view is that everything is a narrative. And my narrative is just as valuable as your narrative. But the dream has a point of view. Now, I am not prepared to say I get it, but I'm about trying to get it Mm -hmm. and i can't rest with the idea that dream interpretation is merely a subjective enterprise Mm -hmm. that dream is saying something and i keep at it until i feel i've got it uh if you miss it as i said and here i think uh woodman's work is very important Um, the body will raise havoc
0: Another thing, if I could just interrupt you, that I had read in her book early on is she said sometimes it's taken her 20 years to understand a dream symbol. Oh,
1: yeah, for sure.
0: So it's not something that you can you know, interpret the next day necessarily. And it's not something that you can get from a dream dictionary either.
1: Yeah, certainly not. No. Um, I have a section in my journal of big dreams it's going to take a lifetime to understand. Mm-hmm. And I look at those once a week. And I've been looking at some of those dreams <laughs> for, wow. for 40 years.
0: So getting back to the book and the three main themes, the first yeah. one being von Franz said that numbers build a bridge between psyche and matter. Right. And that that's sort of a starting off point, would yes. you say? Absolutely. The second theme is about dreams of numbers. Yes. And would you tell us a little bit about how you say it's about their quality and not exactly about the quantity of the number?
1: Well, let me give you an example that happened to me recently. Okay. Uh, I, went, I went to the local supermarket and uh, I got, I don't know, uh, some milk, uh, some butter, you know, half and half. The bill was $6.66. The cashier turned white. Yeah, That wasn't $6.66 for her. That was the number 666, meaning evil. Right. So that's how the psyche works with numbers. Now, I'll give you a very, very quick uh, schema. Uh, Let me just back up and say, the way this appears, it is rarely... As the number one digit in the dream, or the number two digit in the dream, um, but like you're on the first floor of a building, or you're taking your second uh, trip to the supermarket, or three of you are walking down the street, mm-hmm. or um, you're on the fourth floor of an apartment building. Um, one typically as a as a image and an image just like. You would dream of Aphrodite or or Mars or Athena. It is a symbol of unconscious unity where you're a happy parent. You're not aware of the consequences of your actions. You're not aware of the conflicts that you're, in fact, uh, dumping out over people in your environment. Uh, A state of uh, bliss, you might say. Number two will come as you beginning to recognize, oh, if I do this, something like this happens. Uh, It's a recognition of cause and effect. First one action and then another action. Also, you begin to realize, you know, I I have two contradictory tendencies in myself. I say this, but I do this. I'll never drink again. And then in the evening, I'm having two martinis. If you can begin to face the complexity that two represents, something begins to happen. And this is one of Jung's major contributions. The psyche of its own accord, as you suffer over that duality, begins to generate the resolution to that problem. And that appears as the number three. So three dreams often have to do with the resolution of what you suffered over in the two phase. If you have ever noticed, reformed smokers are the most self-righteous. <laughs> that, three, that three stage comes with an edge. Mm-hmm. Oh, I have found the truth. And um, the people in that three stage do tend to proselytize a little bit. I am certainly have been one of them, kind of self-righteousness goes along with the certainty of having resolved what once ailed you. Four is when that certainty collides with the uh, environment and is humanized, so that you have both your humanity and your new attitude. Now, that's a very rough schema, but but if you pay attention, you know, is, uh, was the plane leaving, leaving from gate two or gate three? Uh, were you riding on a motorcycle with two wheels, uh, uh, a car with four wheels? All of these innocuous details can be highly relevant symbolically.
0: Okay, so now why did she just deal with the first four integers in that book? Was that on purpose or was that just for time?
1: I think she got tired. Okay. Yeah. She could have done five. She does allude to five. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are books around. Um, Theodore Apt, I think, has done one uh, with numbers in um, art therapy. Um, she was trying to keep it manageable and not go too far out. That's what I think.
0: And then the third theme is dual mandalas.
1: Yes. One of Jung's major points, and I think it distinguishes him from everybody else, is that identity is inborn. Our life story is inborn. We are born to be somebody. And a lot of psychological suffering is rooted in the fact that we've lost that. We don't, we don't, the person we are is not the person we were born to be. Uh, another way to put that is that this story should unfold over life in certain sequential episodes. You see, already you can see the, the connection with number back in the very first point.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and we lose touch with that. What we try to do in Jungian work is reconnect with that. That is often symbolized by a mandala. The ego that is trying to ascertain who am I to be is also symbolized by a circle. So that these two circles in dreams, and again, they're often hidden. Like, uh, you know, I took a spaceship from Earth to Mars, or um, I, I mentioned earlier when we were talking um I just saw a dream recently of an of a umbilical cord between the earth and heaven. Both of those are circles. Mm-hmm. Uh, they come when people are reorienting their fundamental values and their fundamental understanding of why they're on earth and how they are completing their life. That's what the dual mandala is about.
0: You had said in our first talk back in episode two that a synchronicity's purpose these are my words, is to move us forward. Yes. The goal, right, is to, as you were saying, Jung said, become the person we were born to be. So how, from a practical standpoint, can we look at the images in our environment that we've drawn to us or that come out of us and not just in dreams, but in, in other things, I myself, am pretty literal. Um, so I, I, I tend to look at those things as well. Dreams are very difficult for me. And in fact, the next episode of the podcast is going to be just about dreams because I haven't covered that yet. Uh Um, so how does synchronicity intend to move us forward in life?
1: Well, it's a little piece of the story dropped into time and space.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Each synchronicity is another ingredient of who you are, and um, that takes us back to the first theme: that um, this story, as a potential, is is there in us. It's not. It's not a fait accompli. It's a potential. And it drops into matter through synchronicities. And so uh, each synchronicity is a little piece of that story. And what we try to do is connect the dots. How are your dreams? How are your synchronistic experiences? Forming a story you can comprehend in time and space, which is the story you were born with but uh, since it's in a transcendental dimension and by transcendental von Franz means not easily available to consciousness. Mm -hmm. Um, but by, by looking at the major images, the major synchronicities, and I think this is partly the job of the analyst to begin to weave or try to weave the story of your life that you should be living.
0: This is reminding me of a another thing that I started doing is um, I'm calling it the random Jung quote of the day because I tend to see the same quotes by Jung everywhere. It's the same quotes. Well, he has this huge body of work, most yeah. of it, which hasn't even been published yet, I might add. Right. right, And so I try to find more obscure things that he has said and, and nice, share them. Uh-huh. And, and one of them was about how he doesn't look at a single dream. He looks at the dreams before it and the dreams after it. So he wouldn't uh, interpret a dream on its own.
1: I think he might, but, but certainly you get the fuller picture in a series. There's that wonderful quote uh, that Lawrence Vanderpost. Post, you probably know of oh, him. Yeah. Uh, I think he was originally South African. He, he fled uh, the country because of apar- apartheid. And then he came back to uh, uh, uncover the plight of the Bushman. Uh, He and Jung were friends. And Jung told him that Jung really began to understand the human personality when he realized it is based on a story. And we each have that story. And what we try to do is construct that and then construct that, like you said, out of a series of dreams. Out of a series of synchronicities, not just what does this dream tell me or what does this synchronicity tell me, but how is that dream or synchronicity an evolution of the understanding I've achieved up to now? And where could it be pointing in the future? What's ahead? Can we see hints of what's ahead in this series from past to present and into an imagined future? So that my life really is my own story.
0: Now, synchronicity is a bit of a loaded word. And when I first started this podcast, one of the reasons why I did is because I was, I don't know if you remember, I was upset about what I was (laughs) Oh, I was so complex um about the the word and its misuse, right yeah, so if you would and i I should have asked you earlier to define what is synchronicity, and I would like to say it was Jung who coined the term right
1: as far as I know it was yes nineteen twenty eight
0: mm-hmm. and there's a difference between synchronicity and synchronous. Which means it's just happening at the same time. Right. So there's a difference. And what is right. that difference? Meaning. Okay.
1: Um, see if I can give you an off the cuff definition an a causal, meaningful coincidence.
0: And a causal means meaning it. it's not, not
1: caused. Mm-hmm. The causality cannot explain this. An a-causal coincidence. Now, this is a bit narrow, but it'll get us started. Mm -hmm. An a-causal coincidence between an inner state of mind and an outer event.
0: Not two Uh, outer events.
1: I think it could be. Yes, I think it could be. Yes, I do. Yeah. Or I think Jung reported that when he was working on uh, his fish, imagery and Ion. Now, I may be off on the time period in his life, but he had one event of a dead fish floating up on his yard, a kingfisher, uh, fish flopping out of water. So I think we would have to say it could be several events in the outer world linked by meaning. Meaning is the key. Me- meaning for Jung replaces causality. Mm-hmm. You might, I mean, this may not be quite right, but it's close enough for an introductory discussion. Uh, Rather than talk about cause, he talks about purpose. What's the purpose of this event? Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter why it's there, to what end is it there? Mm
0: -hmm. Another thing that I was seeing in my life and in my experience is when somebody experienced a synchronicity, they would... I just would see this over and over again, they would say, this is a positive sign. This means this is right, or I'm on the right track, or this is meant to be, or this is good. And I'm always thinking, well, is that true? Is that necessarily the case? Just because a synchronicity occurred? Does that mean that they just sort of interpreted it as everything's in harmony and, This was, you know what I mean? This was meant to be, and this is a great thing. What do you say?
1: Uh, No. Um, (laughs) no. I I, I think on the whole, yes. But you can also get warnings Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. that look beneficial. But if you really think about them, they're warnings. So I wouldn't, i wouldn't want to blindly ascribe goodness to all synchronicity. Mm-hmm. The psyche is a mixture of uh good and evil and yeah. it's, um I, I tell you an example i i uh i moved i was going to move out of town for a while I went to another town first, I broke four teeth then my car transmission went out mm-hmm. then um they decided to build a condo next to where I was living and and dynamited a road about four feet from my window. It was telling me this was a mistake, mister. So synchronicities can have, maybe you could even say, well, that had a positive end, but it sure wasn't a positive experience, I'll tell you. Right,
0: right, and so you would consider those events synchronicity?
1: Well, I... Pretty darn close because everything, everything I did went wrong. Mm -hmm.
0: I was going to bring up um, something that I experienced as an example and hear your take on it. Okay. Yeah. You and I had scheduled this interview for the podcast, uh, I think a couple of months ago. The episode that I did right before this one was my second talk with James Hollis. Yeah. And during that recording, in the beginning, when I mentioned his book, The Eden Project, for some strange reason, I wanted to say how many pages the book was. And I keep the books on my desk and I had to reach over and grab it. And I mean, I did that during the interview and you can hear my audio cut out because I'm, you know, reaching across my six foot desk. Well, I flipped to the back and it was 144. Yeah. Okay. Later that day, I got a renewal notice on another website that I own and it was for $144.
1: Okay,
0: a good friend of mine, it continues, a good friend of mine just moved to St. Augustine and opened up a gallery. Oh, nice. He had one in Taos for 25 years, it was called the Living Light Gallery and when he opened the new gallery in St. Augustine, he changed the name and I asked him what it was called because I was sending him something, I needed the address, he said it's called Gallery 144. Oh, that's spooky. Okay. And then either that day or the next day, I uh, t- on Twitter, you can have lists so that like, I have different interests and stuff. And so yeah. mm-hmm. I went to this list and I looked at it and it has 144 members.
2: Oh my God. So
0: that's four times in yep. the space of a day or two that... Now, there are numbers everywhere, okay? Everywhere. There are clocks and calendars and yeah. pages and... but this number kept standing out to me. Yeah, that's
1: freaky. So
0: I hear people a lot talk about numbers that they will see repeatedly. Like every time it seems that they look at the clock, it's 333. Or they'll see that, and then they'll see that number on a license plate in front of them that day. So what's going on there? Would you consider that synchronicity?
1: I'm afraid I'd have to, yes. Mm
0: -hmm. And so, to use my example, what do I take from this seeing the number 144 four times in a day? Or noticing, I should say noticing it, because like I said, there are numbers around us all the time.
1: Yeah. Oh, boy. So, first Hollis, and then... The renewal notice was $144. The renewal notice, and then
0: gallery 144 he named it that because the address is 144 king street wow and then i look at this twitter list that i have and it has 144 members again numbers everywhere but i kept noticing that that one kept coming up so I mean, there are websites about the number 444 and 1111 and people think that when they look at the clock and they see 1111, it means something. And I was wondering what your take was on that given what uh, Von Franz wrote about in Number and Time.
1: Now, was this Jim's last, most recent book?
0: No, it was The Eden Project. It was...
1: Where did that come? It came
0: out in 98.
1: Oh, early one, huh? Yeah, I'd have to think about that, but um, I, I would somehow tie it back to his authorship. Um, what's the last page about? Do you remember?
0: No, and I don't have that on my desk. I'm sorry, but I I, I will go look.
1: You know, I think we I think we could have uh, uh, each other's dreams. And it could be that there was something written in, in that last page oh. uh, that your psyche is telling him to uh, revisit. So because that was where it
0: started, was with me wanting to see how many pages that book was, opening the book, flipping in the back, seeing it was 144, that was the initial seeing of the 144 and then the subsequent ones the renewal notice the gallery name the twitter list were all referencing back to the
1: Hollis book well a- admittedly it's a fantasy of mine mm.
2: i'm not mm.
1: i'm not sure of this but that's where i'd go i mean it's it, interesting. It's, it's hard cuz i like jim hollis and i like his writing <laughs> um so I, uh, I'm predisposed towards that. But I'll give you another example, somewhat yeah, similar, yeah. I, I, not with numbers. But I had a, my colleague, Ann McGuire, who's now deceased, sadly, has written phenomenal books on how the body is symbolic. And she never really published them. So I had a dream that she should start publishing. So I wrote her. And I said, Ann, I think it's time you start publishing mm-hmm. because here's my dream. And she wrote back, she says, oh, my gosh, I just sent these manuscripts off to the publisher. Mm. So I think we can pick up each other's psyche. I don't know where else I would go, because for me, the emotional connection would be to Jim's books. Okay. When it comes to great creativity, weird things start happening. And uh, you might just email him and say, you know, I thought about this and... Uh, I looked at page 144, uh, have you considered continuing on this theme, or he might think you're a kook. Well, so what? Uh, or he might say, you know, damn I was thinking about that too.
0: Another thing that came up for me this week is uh, I was listening to somebody talk about the pyramids at Giza, and it was Robert Buval who was on a podcast called Den of Lore, and he was talking about how And he's a construction engineer and he lived in the condominium complex right next to the Great Pyramid at Giza. And he talked about, yeah, he talked about, and he would stare at it every day. You know, he's written many books about that and the Sphinx. And he said that it's based on prime numbers. It's the, the pyramid is based on a seven to 11 ratio and I can imagine he said that we didn't know that the ancient Egyptians or any of the ancient cultures had that number system or or would even be interested in prime numbers and he said that the whole grid was based on prime numbers and and he was just wondering you know how could that be yeah and then he you know you mentioned how Galileo said that the universe is built with the language of mathematics right now, that brings us to the question of, are things done on purpose, or are we doing it unconsciously?
1: Well, from the Jungian perspective, I think, you know, I say these these number ratios are somehow good for the soul. Mm. And I think, isn't there a whole field called sacred geometry? Yes. And And so why does 7 and 11 feel good to us? Because that's the way we're made. And... Uh, I don't, I mean, there might be a deeper significance to it, but, uh, you know, that would be the kind of thing von Franz, I think, would cite, you know, we see these harmonious patterns in uh, early architecture. Why? Mm -hmm. And she would say, well, because, see, just what I'm trying to tell you guys, the psyche has a numerical structure. And when we find it outside, it feels good. Which leads me to the I Ching.
0: Yes. You do talk about it in Valley of Diamonds. Would you yes. tell us a little bit about that?
1: Well, it's as von Franz describes it, it's a constructed synchronicity. So what the I Ching does, it, it makes a synchronicity happen. Now, I don't use it very often, maybe once a year. And I don't know if you ever noticed that that synchronicities tend to occur when you're suffering, Mm -hmm. when you're wrought up about something, when you're when you're stressed out or you're emotionally, you know, uh, wrought up or something like that. And the idea is uh, that that this this bridge between psyche and matter has as its entry point our own emotionality. The same with the I Ching, that I think if one uses it too often, you're just draining away the energy. But rather, wait until you are unhappy, or wrought up, or suffering, or concerned, mm-hmm. excited. Um, and I was uh, I took a course in the I Ching at the uh, University of Zurich with a professor of Chinese there. Um, she advised not using the I ching until you were sure you were not going to have any dreams about the question. I was give the give the dreams a chance first. If if you're dreamless, if you are up against something that is very important, and if you're emotionally uh topsy turvy, that emotional state will give the what shall I say, the forces of the cosmos, a chance to enter into time and space through the I Ching. And, uh, you know, I I don't use it very often, but I can tell you uh, the two most significant decisions of my life came from following the I Ching.
0: And you say that it is a constructed synchronicity, so it works similarly. And would you say that astrology and tarot cards work that same way
1: i'm not terribly familiar with uh astrology uh there you see you're not trying to create a read. in other words this applies to oracles what i've just said um i think it would apply to to the tarot cards as well although there again you know i know about them i I don't know how to interpret them but i would suspect yes uh we are by using a um a procedure trying to get the universe to speak through an a-causal event. And by gosh, it works. I remember <laughs> <laughs> I, I remember this, this course I took on the I Ching. Uh, about half a dozen of us hired this uh, lovely, lovely uh, professor of Chinese at the University of Zurich to give us a private seminar. I think we met like 10 times in our apartment. And I heard these people talking, and I thought, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. And about halfway through the course, she stopped, and she's very gracious, and she said, no, I, I feel everyone is with me, <laughs> except for you, Mr. Sparks. <laughs> and I said, you're right. I, I, you know, I'm not here to belittle you, but I don't get it. Well, uh, I had a, uh, it was a semester break, and I went to London. For um, to see some Shakespeare, you could fly to London and back and see Shakespeare for about a hundred bucks those days. Mm. And uh, when I was there, I walked into a bookshop and I had bought a copy of the I Ching in English. And I went home and I asked it a question and I threw it and I thought, Oh my God, mm-hmm. how did it know? <laughs> so I went back and I apologized and I said, I I think I'm ready to get what you you're know. talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it really well. Uh, uh one of the most profound moments of my life. And um, we share uh, a friendship with the actor and one of the actors in this. I was in Zurich. I was out of money. Yes. Uh, did I tell you this story? Yes. I love oh, this okay. story. Should no, I tell it again? Tell it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I was out of money and I was ready to go home. And I had a friend uh, who was back in the States and let me stay in her apartment for the summer, so I didn't have to pay any rent. I had just enough money to eat rice and beans. And I thought, you know, I, I really should quit because uh, this is not working out. And I was hit, I, I didn't have money for the train. So I was hitchhiking back to this apartment. Uh, was in, uh, Kuznog. Uh, Kuznog. I was in Kuznock, outside of Kuznak. I was hitchhiking from the village of Kuznock back to her apartment. I couldn't get a ride. Usually in those days, oh, no, sorry, I, I missed the most important thing. So I threw the I Ching. And the I Ching gave me hexagram number one. It's the most positive hexagram in the I Ching. No moving lines. It says, wait, the universe will respond. Mm-hmm. That was the, so I thought, well, let's see. <laughs> you know, worst thing that can happen is I have to borrow money to get a plane flight back. And so I was hitchhiking back day after day after day after day but one day I couldn't get a ride up oh, pulls a uh, uh, little Italian I um, forget what the make of the car was uh, small little compact car it was mm-hmm. Daryl Sharp mm-hmm. he said where are you going I said I'm going up to Louise's place and he said well will give you a ride so he gave me a ride he said how are you doing? I said, I'm doing terrible. I think I'm going to have to give this up. And he said, well, I'm, I'm graduating. and I have this, this teaching work in Switzerland that pays about $300 an hour. Would you like it? There it was. Yeah. Universe responded. So I, I, I know or I can imagine some talk about the I Ching is flaky, but I know there's something to it. And what's even more interesting, if I had only known at the time, you know, I was in the Peace Corps. Mm-hmm. And um, in Korea South Korea and after about two weeks the professors corralled me we, we go to this little thatched hut outside the school for, for a bowl of rice and, um, and fish soup they said come on we're going to take you down to this part of town it's a little seedy but don't worry you're with us we went to visit this woman we sat around her on her floor she pulled out sticks she dropped the sticks and she gave me an I Ching reading. Mm. Now, I would love to know what happened to that piece of paper. I don't know where it is. But you see how they took it seriously. Yeah. Now I realize that was the I Ching. I didn't realize it then. As above, so below. Yeah.
0: As within, so without. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. yeah. That, this is an extension and a clarification of that fundamental truth.
0: You've edited a couple of books on Edward Enger. Yes. Who, who is a lot of people's favorite Jungian analyst. Including me. Including you. And I had asked you about something that I thought was attributed to him, and we were clarifying that. And, yeah. Um, you said something about his comment on the survival of our civilization and, and how it rests on a few
1: shoulders. Well, this comes out of his book, um, Architect of the Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. He thinks we're in an apocalyptic time and that, I don't know if he says this, I, this is how I'd explain it. The God image is no longer adequate, it has restricted <clears throat> too much of human nature and only acknowledges what's good. And everything that has been excluded is pressing for integration and that is behind the chaos of our time so we're being assaulted by the parts of human nature we don't consider sacred mm. because our god image uh, ne- uh, either neglects or calls them sinful now this i think we'd have to say is a statement of faith On his part, if sufficient people can begin articulating that fact. And here's where I think unions Jungians can make a contribution because we're working with dreams, which shows this. That may induce enough people to reorient their myopia and take the pressure off the collective unconscious so it doesn't have to attack us the way it is. Wow. Is that going to happen? I don't know. But it seems to me a worthy illusion, if it is, that at least we Jungians can do something. What is the nature of our consciousness that is creating this terrific... Explosion in the in- unconscious that really, I think now is is in danger of breaking out in World War III.
0: Yeah,
1: I think we're that close.
0: You said we are so under attack as Jungians. Are you willing to talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, it's the it's the it's the non-rational. Everybody wants to be good. Everybody wants to be successful. Everybody wants to be rich. But what about value? Why aren't we about creating value as opposed to wealth success and prestige? That's a blow to the ego and that people don't want to hear about. They want to hear Joe Osteen talk about how to become successful with God. Not what that myopic understanding of God is creating in the body politic, but Jungians say that and they don't like it. You know, there's a wonderful play, uh, <clears throat> I think in English, it's the Voyager without luggage. I, I read it in French, the Voyageur sans bagage. It's about, it's a true story, a true start of, uh, in World War I, a guy meanders into Paris, one of the train stations completely an amnesiac. He has stumbled off the lines. He doesn't know who he is, doesn't know where he is. That's true. And then Jean-Anouy picks it up and makes a play out of it. And in the play, which is probably also true, this part's probably true, uh, the newspapers ran ads, you know, does anyone know who this man is? If you're his family, please notify us. Well, they got hundreds of Notifications, thinking the guy might have some money. Mm. Then Anoui picks it up as a play, and the family does connect with him. And he goes back to his home and begins to remember who he was. And he was an asshole. And he can't face it. And the play ends. Our job as unions is to point up all those things that we don't want to see. And that is often not popular. Yeah.
0: I know. Going back to something that I had said earlier about how you trained with people who actually knew Jung and worked with Jung. Marie-Louise von Franz, C.A. Meyer, Jung's grandson, and you had told me that after Jung left, or after Jung had, had died, the shadow really came out in Zurich, in the Jungian community. Did I hear that right?
1: Well, kind of. Um, I had asked C.A. Meyer, who <clears throat> was the first president of the Jung Institute, and one of my supervisors, if he would give me an exam, if one of the final exams, he had to do eight, and you could pick your examiner. And he said, no. I said, why not? He said, I saw in the second generation, the shadow was not being dealt with, and I got out.
0: You know, I'm, I'm just going to say a little bit about myself here. Um, when I was at analysis, that seemed to be the, the main thing that we worked on constantly. And- yeah. I don't know if it's because I needed it. Well, clearly I
1: did. but That's where we I, start.
0: She would not let me get away with anything. and Good. I, Yeah, but it took me a long time to appreciate oh, it, it hurts.
1: that. It hurts. Yeah. it hurts. Let me tell you, it hurts.
0: But now, now I'm, I'm seeing it in other people and need to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But nobody yeah. wants to have their nose rubbed in their poop.
0: No. And, and neither do I, you know, but that was her job. Well, I've gotten, so
1: I appreciate it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking about that earlier today because I got triggered, you know, something set me off and I reminded myself of something I told somebody the other day, which was that I like having friends who, disagree with me that's what I that's what I said I said I I like having people in my life who believe in things that I don't believe in and don't Mm -hmm. believe in things that I believe in and I I I like having people you know challenge me and and not just agree with everything I say and then this morning somebody challenged me didn't agree with what I said and I got set off so that still happens no matter how much work you've done on yourself, that still happens, but it doesn't, kind of it doesn't last as long, right? It's, so, it's supposed so, to happen. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, we need to be broken up and reevaluate uh, our attitudes, and this is the way it happens. You're not going to change if you're comfortable. Yeah.
0: Well, some people say they don't want to change. They're fine the way they are.
1: Good. <laughs> <laughs> you probably aren't going to be my friend. Yeah. I'll drive you crazy.
0: I love that. I love it that you just said that. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean.
1: When we are around
0: people who don't know they have a shadow or who don't have much self awareness, then is it the case that we need to carry the shadow, or we're gonna carry
1: the shadow? Boy, I'm I'm uh, I'll be sixty nine in November. And I'm tired of dealing with people like that. Mm. I I seek out people with whom I can have a sharing relationship, and I'm just not interested Mm -hmm. in pouring energy down black holes anymore. I've done that for 40 years. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Another thing that you mentioned to me when we spoke the other day you said that Jungian psychology is largely an oral tradition. What did you mean by that?
1: Well, things that, you, that I picked up in training that aren't in books. Mm-hmm. You know, Jung said this to that person, Jung said that to that person um, that, you, that he never wrote about, but are sort of passed down from Jung to his students to us. And that that's one of the reasons I was so glad I could train in Zurich. You you really talked to people who knew Jung about what he said, how he acted, what he felt. Um, it, it certainly doesn't contradict anything in the books, but I do think it expands it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that
0: gets me to what you and I talked about before we started recording um, about quoting the experts. Is what I said this morning on Twitter that I do why should anybody care about what I think what my opinion is I'm not a big fan of opinions um, I'm not an expert so I'm quoting the experts and I'm putting it out there
1: Jungian uh, psychology at least was taught on the guild model we were taught like craftspeople, and in a craft You sit yourself in front of a master, and you learn, and you become an apprentice, and then you become a journeyman, and then you become a master yourself. And I think it's quite out of fashion, but very important, and you'll find this in the biographies, I think, of every really creative classical composer, uh, every uh, author of note, that they studied the work that came before them to learn what quality is i see nothing wrong with and i still do it quoting Jung, uh learning just how did that guy see things and i think you're doing the same i don't see anything wrong with that at some point then one starts to develop one's own angle i have i have started in the last five years doing that uh, but i couldn't do it if i hadn't really understood what Jung was driving at so i don't think Repeating excellence is antithetical to developing your own voice. I mean, when I teach, uh, I teach Ion sometimes, which is just so difficult. Mm-hmm. And I always start off with a with a uh, with a uh, piece I found in a biography of Shostakovich, of all people, who told his students, "Before you start composing, you sit down and you study Bach until you know everything he's written." Mm-hmm. Now, Shostakovich is not the least bit like Bach, at least to this person's ears. But to know what quality was in previous generations allows us to reproduce quality in our own generation. Mm. I feel very strongly about that. And that, you know, that actually forms one of the arguments in my field. Oh, you're just, you know, you're just a dinosaur. You're just repeating what, um, what Jung has said. Yeah, but darn right I am because I'm studying how he understood what the psyche was, and then I'll build on that.
0: Why is Jung relevant today? <laughs> That's not my question. I'm passing along yeah. something. That well, I've it sounded. appears he's
1: less so because it takes a damn much work. Yeah, it does. It's a hard process. Um, I go back to um, Vanderpost's um, citing the story Jung told him about story. As far as I'm aware, Jung is the only psychologist that sees really what individuality is. It, is. it is a psychological fact. It is a transcendental reality. It is a pre-existing story. And it's when we don't know what our story is that we become the fodder of tyrants. Mm-hmm. So that the way to democracy, to a civil society, is through people who who know why they're here and are not seduced by dishonest, lying, authoritarian, uh, greedy, money-grubbing politicians. And that seems to be happening more and more. Why can people not see who is running our country? Because they don't know who they are. Our work is helping people know who they are so they're not seducible. Mm. I think I've got it up on my website. Let me see that quote. I can read you the quote. It is so beautiful. It's from A Testament to the Bushman, written with Jane Taylor, Penguin Book, 1984. Jung told me how his work as a healer did not take – I can't read this. So I can't even Give me a second, clap myself.
2: Um,
1: Jung told me how his work as a healer did not take wing. The metaphor is mine. Until he realized that the key to the human personality was its story. Every human being at core he held had a unique story, and no man could discover his greatest meaning unless he lived and, as it were, grew his own story. Should he lose his story or fail to live it, He lost his meaning, became disoriented, the collective fodder of tyrants and despots, and ended up, as so many did, alienated and out of their minds, as had the patients in their Burgholzley Asylum, to whom he owed this insight. Mm. The collective fodder of tyrants and despots. That's the devil today.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, thank you for sharing that with us.
1: I love that quote. Yeah.
0: My last question is about groups, about studying Jung in groups.
2: Yeah.
0: You know, I'm a big proponent of Jungian analysis. I think that the relationship with the analyst is very important, but some people are just not able to do it. I mean, I know that there are people not willing to do it. It's a huge commitment of not only time, but of money, yeah, and I I said you know it's better to read the books and go to the lectures if you can than do nothing, but they can't take the place of personal analysis, and so would you tell us what your stance is on book you know reading groups, book clubs? That's well, I'm I mean. running two of
1: them right now. Okay. <laughs> I find the people are all in analysis too, mm-hmm. or have been one or the other. Right, and it's a great support to read Jung and see how we reached conclusions in our work from what he has written. Um. But I don't think you have to um, be in analysis to do that. Uh, I love teaching Jung 101. Mm
2: -hmm. I just love it. Mm -hmm.
1: And I think it can really help people. Uh, The question... So I I see nothing negative about studying Jung in groups at all. Okay. Now, as far as group therapy goes, I did group therapy for... For years in California, I got nothing out of it. Mm -hmm. I can't say I got nothing out of it. It doesn't deal with the self. It can't deal with the self. That's its weakness, I think. Um, Did I learn about some of my bullshit? Yeah. There, I think it's it's probably a value, although now I have absolutely no interest in it. What interests me is the individual journey and as as far as money goes, I don't buy that as an excuse. I don't know anyone who would turn somebody away for money. I've turned people away who will tell you it was about money, mm-hmm. but I mm-hmm. see very clearly they just want to come in here and mess with my mind. Folks who are serious, I've worked with students, I work with older people uh who are seriously working. I negotiate my fee and they say we go every other week and it's bearable for both of us.
2: Right.
1: So usually this money and time thing is a big excuse. Now, I don't know if other therapists are the same. All the ones I know, if somebody came in hurting, seriously wanting to work, they would talk until an agreement was reached. Mm
0: -hmm. And then there are places like the Jung Center here in Chicago, the one north of Chicago in Evanston has a clinic uh, with a sliding scale yeah. key structure.
1: I, for me, I got something out of individual work I would never have gotten. And I, and I worked with a Jungian in Zurich who I think was the dumbest therapist in the world when I first got there. He had no clue. And I finally got with somebody who did have a clue, and the difference saved my life. Mm. It's can you see who that person is? Can the therapist see who that person is, who the analyzant is, Mm -hmm. and help them become the person that they are? Uh, I don't think you can get that in group therapy. I don't think you get that in bad Jungian therapy. You do get it in competent Jungian work. I did want to mention your new book that
0: was just released yesterday.
1: I guess yesterday, yeah. I got an email. It's on the way.
0: September 21st, 2017. Uh For those of you who are listening at a later time, um, was published by Inner City Books. It's called Carl Jung and Arnold Toynbee, The Social Meaning of Inner Work. If you would just briefly tell us a little bit about it, and then we'll have you back um, to discuss
1: it. I'd love to, yes. Love to come back as well. Um, Toynbee was a historian... Born, I think, about 10 years after Jung. So about the same age, a little little younger. Mm-hmm. To make a long story short, he put, getting back to what Edinger said, uh, the health of a civilization on the creative personality. And what the creative personality does is they find the inner problem that they're suffering under and they link it up with its analog in the society in the outer world and in addressing their inner issues they're also addressing their outer issues yeah so he puts psychology at the foundation of a healthy society Mm -hmm. of course jung says the same thing so that's that's the link They, they they both see that the individual journey is crucial for the health of the times. And I give it dreams to show that. And then Tommy also talks about, so what happens if the society doesn't listen? Mm -hmm. That's the second half of the book. I present dreams to show that. Spent six years on it. So uh, be the first on your block.
0: When I saw you two years ago, I remember you telling me that you were working on it and I'm I'm really happy that you finished it. And it seems quite timely for what we're going through uh, right now. I right do now.
1: too. Right? I, I right? had, of course, no intent, but boy, it's, um, it's relevant, I think. I mean, what I wanted to show is that inner work isn't solipsistic. Mm-hmm. It isn't merely navel-gazing. If it goes deep enough, it brings you out into the world. And you talk about out there what, is, what you learned about healing your problem and what the society needs to do to heal its problem.
0: Yeah. Okay, Gary. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you, Laura. It's
1: always a pleasure.
0: We look forward to reading the book and then having you back to talk about it.
1: I look forward to it, too.
0: I'd like to again thank Mr. Sparks for his time today, and I look forward to speaking with him again in the future. You can find links to everything that was mentioned today on our website, speakingofjung.com. There, you'll also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to listen to or to download for free. The episodes are also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and a whole host of other listening platforms, which you can find links to on our About page. So with special thanks to Darrell Sharp and Liz Jefferson of Inner City Books, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to speaking of
1: Young.